today before I begin my interview with um, Bruce Alderman. I'd like to um, say a few words just about the turmoil that the world is in today. I, I think about what is going on and I think about those who are really in need. And I, I do really believe that this is a wake-up call, even if it sounds really cliche, that we all remember that we're all in this together. And there is this universal oneness and we're interconnected and we need to be there for one another. I do know from personal experience that sometimes when something really bad happens to someone, people just don't know what to do. So they, they just sort of disappear and, and they don't do anything. And it's, it's so incredibly hurtful. And the reason I, I want to bring this up because I, I've done that my I've done that myself. And I think all of us, if we can just think about it this way, is that if our five-year-old self could see what we are doing as an adult to help someone in need, would that little girl or little boy see you calling the person, texting the person regularly, sending energy, love to them, or just kind of, you know, disappearing? And what would your little one, whether it's a child you have or a grandchild or just a little one that you care about, they're watching every movement we make. And today, today I think is or I know it's a great time to bring this up because Bruce worked all over the world and he saw these indigenous cultures when when something, a tragedy happened, they all grieved together. They all held one another. They all loved one another. They all supported one another. So let's, let's just um, help let that be a reminder to me and to all of us that, that we really, really need to unconditional, unconditionally love one another every single moment of every single day as, as well as we can. And with that, here we go. Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I have a special guest on the program. I've been very excited about interviewing Bruce Alderman. Bruce has lived in many parts of the world in indigenous cultures where young children are raised very differently from our Western civilization. This is a special interest of mine. And so I'm really excited to hear what he has to say today. Bruce is acting chair for the graduate program in the Consciousness and Transformative Studies at 
JFK University in Pleasant Hill, California. Before his university teaching, Bruce taught English as a second language in several different countries around the world. He also lived in an ashram for a time. Bruce is married and has one son. He has published several essays in academic journals and several books, mostly on the topic of integral spirituality and interreligious relationship. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So let's just jump right in. Um, as everyone knows, this is Interviews with Innocence podcast, and it is about everything about children, spirituality, and consciousness. And Bruce, I know you've traveled the world and you've taught young children in various countries, including Korea, Indonesia, Bali, all culturally very different in terms of raising this, the very young. And could you tell us about the different experiences that stand out for you in, in teaching these young children in such different cultures? Sure. The first place I went was to South Korea, and I, I taught there for two years, and I taught all grade ranges. Uh, so I taught from even some kindergarten, uh, first graders, up to high school. And I really met some really remarkable, delightful children, especially the very young children in Korea. And really, I, I loved all of my students, but it was, to me, a bit heartbreaking to see what happened to the children as they moved through the educational system there. Because by the time they got to middle school and in high school, they were appearing soul crushed to me. Mm. They were under such a heavy load um, of, of just being driven towards uh, only, you know, single-mindedly towards the goal of, of getting a good education, of course, and, and going on to a, a set career. Um, I think Korea, perhaps next to Japan, for a while felt like it was lagging behind. So it really pushed its children um, to accelerate their growth and development. And uh, I was part of that in a way because I was working at a hagwon, which is a language school. And then I was a tutor at night um, for my language school. And so I would see children after they got off from school and they'd come be with me. And then sometimes I'd go to kids' house from like eight to 10 um, in the evening to teach them. And uh, when I would ask them, you know, what are your dreams for the future? What are your visions? What would you most like to do? If you had a million dollars, what would you do? And they'd always just say sleep or just, just shut down. They just, they didn't want to do anything anymore. So that really, was was hard to, to witness that. Yes. Oh, wow. And then I know you traveled to Bali and you had an entirely different experience. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Uh, I'd like to say initially, uh, there's a teacher, uh, a spiritual teacher named Krishnamurti. And I used to you know, be quite inspired by his teachings. He basically just teaches looking within yourself to find um, light and illumination and, and understanding your own conditioning and freeing yourself from your condition, um, opening to love. And one of the things that he emphasized was how important really we should take um, the formation of children. And if we can interact with children in a way that can uh, prevent them from becoming overly conditioned by society, that yes. they can remain fresh and alive and open to inquiry and 
always living and learning, always being delighted with life, not letting it shut them down into narrow boxes. And so he founded a lot of schools. And that's what initially got me interested in teaching. And so then I went to Korea and did the teaching there, and I had that experience. And eventually I went to a Krishnamurti school in India, but before that I went to Indonesia. And in Indonesia, I lived in, in Bali and Java. And I was really struck by the stark contrast between the children that I encountered in Bali and the children I had known in, in Korea. Um, in Bali, the children seemed very uh, spontaneously alive, very creative, very tender with each other. I didn't see, in, in Korea, I saw a lot of fragmentation between the, the boys and the girls, a lot of competitiveness and putting each other down. And in Bali, I didn't encounter that. Uh, mm -hmm. Brothers and sisters walking, holding hands, and just playing in a delightful way together. And uh, it really was striking to me. Wow. What do you, um, what do you think Bali, how, what made it so different um, in the way that the elders in the community saw and treated the young children? Yeah, one thing I learned over there that, you know, I talked to some people about my experiences with their children. And, uh, you know, they said that, you know, for them, children are sacred. Children come uh, from heaven and still have the light and the, the perfume of heaven about them and should not be set on the ground, um, should not be fully grounded into the earthly element yet. Let the transition be smooth and gentle. When they are born. When they're born. Yes. And for the first, you know, year, they never put them on the ground, so they're always carrying them, um, and holding them and sleeping together with them. Um, and so I think the children really grow up, in, in, you know, as long as the parents are doing this, with a beautiful, strong sense of attachment to their parents. Right. And what about including them in... Was Bali a place where they had a lot of music and culture, or, or what kind kind of place was it in that sense? And how did it include the children? Yes, it's a amazingly uh, creative and generative kind of place. And if you just you know, if you go to some villages like Ubud or uh, Pliatan or other places, and you walk down the street. And you just kind of like peek over the fence as you're walking by. Right. See people in the backyards making sculptures and painting. And uh, I had a good friend who was a painter. Um, and there's a really open communal spirit about the art. So um, if somebody's working on a painting, they'll let their kids come. And even though they're going to, you know, do it painting professionally, they'll still let the kids come add something on it and they'll work creatively with it to fold it in. Um, whatever the kid does. Mm. Um, and, and with the music too, they have uh, what they call a pendopo. It's kind of like a gazebo in the center of the town. And they keep a lot of the musical instruments there and they'll go in the evenings and, and practice and play. And uh, you can see the adults, you know, practicing, but the kids will show up and they can, they're allowed to pick up any of the instruments to join in, to bang away. And so you'll see even, you know, one or two year old, three year old, you know, just doing their thing. Yes, yes. And all just making music and, and, and delighting together. And it's really, you know, uh, precious to see that, you know. Right. And being allowed to do that, not being 
told not to do that or to do it a certain way, that sort of thing. Wow. Right, yeah, I didn't see the shaming or the, the, the forbidding. They just basically were, were kind of included and, and, and worked with, with whatever was arising. Right. And, and I know in our, our pre-conversation, you talked a little bit that they also intertwine the lightness and the darkness of the children. So can you elaborate on, on that? Yeah, it's it's gen it's a general philosophy in Bali, uh, in the Hindu culture. There, they uh, you know believe that the light and the dark should be honored. If you look at their ceremonial dress, it's a black and white checker with gray spots where the checkers intersect, and that represents the honoring of the light and the dark elements of life and their integration. Um, and if they do rituals. They will allow gambling or cockfighting or something right at the edges of their most sacred ritual. And they recognize those things are bad and wrong. And yet they also include them as part of the overall human spirit. And actually there's a belief that any negativity that might gather around that, if you just nurture that, eventually it becomes better. <laughs> and wow. so there's that embrace of, of the, the light and the dark, the, the fierce and the, the tender. Um, that I think leaks over or, or informs how they relate to their, their children. I don't see any crushing or shaming of, of aspects of the kids. Wow, that's, that's so, so beautiful. Um, so I know your graduate work and now you're, you're a professor in um, spirituality and consciousness in psychology. And I know you've studied a lot in depth the importance of love and touch, but you had also mentioned when it really, really um, impacted you was when you when you saw that in Bali. So can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, actually, you know, I saw what I saw in Bali before I, I really went in depth into my psychological studies. Uh, but when I started studying about the importance of secure attachment and of, of touch, of being, um, you know, close, uh, you know, to the children from the very beginning um, and letting them feel held and secure, mm -hmm. um, I saw how well they were doing that in Bali. And I also, because I, I had gotten married at the time that I went into school for psychology, my wife is from Nepal, and uh, they have a similar culture. They're also a Hindu culture. And my son almost never was alone by himself in a bed or, you know, in a crib someplace. He was always being held. So if, if mom or her sister is working or cooking or watching TV, usually he's wrapped up in a blanket on the back and just cuddled right there or cuddled right here just all the time. And uh, so I was, you know, very happy to support that and be part of that. And I knew, you know, from my psychological studies, how beneficial that's going to be for establishing a secure uh, attachment, which is the basis for all healthy relationship. Right. And I'm happy to say that I really do see the fruits of that in my son. He's much more mature and balanced and stable in himself than I was as a high schooler. Yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me 
I have twins and they were born very, very early and spent a lot of time in the um, neonatal unit. And I remember the first day I was able to do skin to skin with, with each one separately where you, you don't have any clothes on and you just put the, you know, um, hold the baby up and you just hold hold the baby and just feel the heart rate or heartbeat and just pour love into one another. And it was such, such a deep emotional um, thing for me. It just, it was just overwhelming, overwhelming love. And so to be able to just continue that and not be so busy to get them there, to get them here. And just with that touch and that love. Very, very sweet. So let's talk about your wife and your son. And I love the story about, um, I guess I'll call it a premonition of having your son before you did. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, I met my wife at a spiritual retreat. I was volunteering as a cook for the retreat. She was staying down the road. Um, as a visitor in the U.S., she wasn't living here permanently, just was on a vacation and uh, was looking to entertain herself. And she came and knocked on the door because she heard there were some Tibetans and other people nearby. And I was the one who opened the door and uh, fell in love at first sight, actually. <laughs> I love it. Love um, it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> but let her um, get a job in the kitchen with us for just for her own fun. And... Uh, uh, met her that way. And so we, we met at the retreat and we met some, you know, very wonderful teachers at the retreat. And uh, at another retreat, after I had married her, um, she had a dream that uh, she was outside by a river and she saw three colored jewels um, at the, you know, at the creek bed or the river bed. And she was um, reaching in and she picked them out of the water. And as she picked them out of the water, this luminous white radiant being rose out of the water and up into the sky above her. And then she woke up. And uh, so because we were at the retreat, we asked the um, teacher there if he had any ideas what that meant. Right. And he laughed and he looked at her and said, oh, She's pregnant. <laughs> They're going to have a son, you know, a wonderful wow. son, you know. And it was true. Wow. And and tell us about some of the stories that you told me when he was four years old that he, he would used to tell. And I even saw something posted on Facebook that you had shared with um, something he had said as he had gotten a little bit older. So can you share a few of those? Th those? Yeah, I have to say, Right now, he's a very normal teenager who just <laughs> likes yes. video games and, and getting interested in girls and all that stuff and thinking about cars in college. But when he was young, there was a lot of magic in him. I mean, he's still a wonderful, wonderful, creative boy. But uh, I was often surprised by what came out of his mouth as a little boy. Um, very early age, when he was like three or four, he said that... Uh, Dad, I, I dreamed I was a star, a star in the sky. I said, oh, oh, really? And they said, yeah. And then I came down and I cut you up into a lot of pieces. I said, why? He said, 
so you could be a star in the sky like me. Oh, wow. That's not something they just make up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, you know, don't know exactly what his intuition was, but I do feel like he was speaking from, from some kind of place of depth and soul. Right. Once thinking about the light in the dark, we told, you know, when we were talking about the light in the dark, just his own discovery of that and kind of like my trying to help him navigate that. We were riding in the car together and he said to me, dad, what? I think he was about maybe, maybe four or five at this time. You know? And he said, dad, guess what? I said, what? And he said, I'm not like other boys. I said, really? Why? And he said, you remember you told me I was a good boy? I said, yeah, yeah, I did. I'm also bad. <laughs> and I said, really? You know, he says, yeah, I'm bad too. I said, me too. He goes, oh, you too? I said, yeah. I said, everybody's good and bad. He says, oh. And he went home and he drew a superhero that he called Sun Shadow. And it was a hero that had the sun and the moon, the light and the dark inside of him. Interesting. And how beautiful that you just opened up the conversation with him. And, and just instead of, I think in Western civilization, we just kind of brush those sorts of things off because it seems like child talk or whatever it may be. But um, can you speak on that, just the importance that, that you have found on engaging children when they talk about, about things a little bit beyond their maturity or things that sound, you know, like a great imagination, but you know it's more than that? Yeah, I think just that's been a practice from from the beginning and I, I think it's really helped him mature as a person who's generally curious genuinely curious about and engaged with life and an independent thinker um, and an open heart and that is basically just meeting them where they're at and not necessarily meeting them with answers but meeting them with more questions trusting them in some sense, to look together with you into something deeper. Um, not expecting them necessarily to have all answers beyond their any possible maturity, no. But letting them move to the edge of what's possible for them and, and trusting that they can navigate there. Yes. Um, and that I think that's really nurturing for, for children. Right. And, and for them to then to start trusting their own inner guidance, I think, and having that strength, which really brings me to my next question. And you had um, something about the heart to heart sort of parenting versus, let's see, what did you call it? Spontaneous or um, versus survival personality. And this concept really touched me. I really had to think about that. So, so can you venture into to that? Sure. That those distinctions come from psychosynthesis, and uh, especially Roberto Assagioli and some other uh, practitioners after him. And in that perspective, which I, I do share, um, our our core, the the I, is is it's a point of awareness and will, and and love, capacity for for love, and. It's not yet an ego structure. It's not a bunch of images or a bunch of beliefs. It's that, that fundamental 
awareness that's capable of, of, of taking in the world, right? And when you are sitting together with somebody unconditionally, um, not putting expectations on how they should show up or what they can share with you or not, in that place, you're meeting them that eye to eye, that, that uh, soul center to soul center. And that's from psychosynthesis point of view, that's called an authentic unifying center. And it's also called disidentification. And it's called disidentification because in that place of non-defendedness, when you are being received with that unconditional love and, and gaze, you don't have to hold on to this presentation of yourself or that presentation or this part. I can't, you just let it all come up. So you disidentify with those places that you normally hold to to survive in less open contexts. Um, often we grow up in environments where the conditions are there and you have to be this way or we don't accept you. Yes. We punish you. We put you aside. We ignore you. And so we learn to identify with those fragments of ourselves and we hold on to those as part of our survival personality. Mm -hmm. um, and so that practice of disidentification, it, it's love that facilitates that disidentification and allows you to be more deeply integrated because you can stop holding on to those pieces and letting them all move in and through you. Right. Wow. That's such, that's such beautiful stuff because you just you, you think about you know when you meet someone or when you're with a young child and and I think in western civilization it is people will pick out certain things that you know you like the person better if they do those things more and and just to think about what that does as a child gets older mm -hmm. um wow so a lot of thought to what we could maybe do a little bit differently or add in to what we're already doing, right? In raising the very young. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit. I know you teach dream yoga at JFK and I'm really excited about taking this class. And um, you were mentioning, which is a big thing, theme of mine is that sleep is sacred. Mm -hmm. And um, tell us a little bit about that, what dream yoga is and, and, um, sleeping being sacred and those sorts of things. Sure. Uh, where I learned dream yoga um, is from the Tibetan tradition. There are multiple traditions. There's the Kuna tradition and, and some Aboriginal traditions that all approach dreams as a, a sacred terrain to, to work in. I learned from the Tibetan tradition and dream yoga there is, it has multiple aspects to it, but uh, one of the main things is to learn to become lucid in your dreams, um, to become awake and realize you're dreaming, and then and remain within the dream so that you can work creatively in the dream. Um, but ultimately, it's actually uh, a practice for dying well. Um, because in, in dream yoga, and then it, you can transition with that same awareness into deep dreamless sleep. And... Uh, maintain awareness into deep dreamless sleep, but without any content there. Uh, and to be able to do that and not lose your center um, is a way to, from the Tibetan point of view, to die well. Um, so here's the, the metaphor that helps you, or actually the, um, the real world 
uh, familiar part that we all know about um, that can maybe help make sense of why they think this, which is when we go to sleep, normally we just go to our beds, we put our heads down, and we fall asleep. And we just kind of unconsciously go unconscious, right? Right, right. You don't fall into sleep, fall asleep with any kind of deliberateness or awareness. Um, and so whatever has been up in you emotionally, the, the charges, the stresses, the, the, the arguments, the disagreements, the, the worries, whatever, you know, it could be positive things too, but whatever is most active in you is usually where the mind is drawn after you fall asleep. And from the Tibetan point of view, dreams get generated um, from that, that, that place in your body because um, these different uh, reactions and experiences are stored at different places in the body. So if you just go on to sleep unconsciously, the awareness is going to go there and you'll start basically turning that, that kind of content into dreams. And, uh, you know, you're, there's no control there. There's no, um, there's no clarity of consciousness there. Right. And so they, their practice is to go to sleep in, in uh, deliberate ways, holding your awareness in particular parts of the body and to breathe and to visualize in different ways as you fall asleep. And that will influence where your dreams manifest from. And so they have ways of helping you manifest dreams from peaceful or good places, as well as challenging places. Yeah. Um, so it's an opportunity for, for growth too, to kind of figure things out while, while you're asleep. Exactly. There's so much you can do um, right. in, your, in your dream world if you become lucid there. Um, that you can do all kinds of things and uh, creative things and, and, and problem solving and adventures. <laughs> um, Interesting. So do you, do you have a, a story to tell us about a personal experience or maybe something you're, a, a story that your son had in a dream? There's both. Um, I don't know how esoteric your listeners are. I can, I can tell you I'm <laughs> a little bit esoteric. <laughs> Maybe keep it a little, a little simple because this is one of our first podcasts. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. I'll just say simply this way. Uh, I had not studied with any Tibetans yet, um, but I, I had my first lucid dream um, where I, a, a lama, Tibetan lama, appeared in my room and approached me um, he then leapt on me and pinned me down and told me to let go um, because there was a razor blade in my bloodstream. And the razor blade came and went to my temple. And um, he said, just let go, trust it. Um, and I did. And it moved from there into an experience of like moving through a tunnel with lots of wind into a, just an opened up, vast, spacious place where there was no form, only awareness. And he was showing that this is both a way to a higher level of consciousness, but also what dying looks like. Um, wow. Interesting. Have you ever used this dream yoga with, with young children? Yes. Yeah, of course, I don't do any of the, the, the difficult yogic kind of parts of it. Right. But the, the very you can already begin to do it just by suggesting that you can do it. And um, that's what I did with my son. He was suffering from nightmares and 
you know, I just told him it's very possible uh, for you to, to know you're dreaming when you're dreaming and then you can do anything. You can be a hero. You know, he was excited by that. Yes. So, um, in the dream, he became aware that when the, the nightmare was coming and then he got very creative and flew in the air and kicked the monster in the head and he beat the monster. And, you know. <laughs> and then did he come, come down to tell you exactly what he dreamt the next morning excitedly? <laughs> yes. In fact, part of the Tibetan tradition is when you do have a lucid dream to dance, to celebrate, to, to, to get all excited because that reinforces it. Right, um, right. So we did that. We celebrated. I have heard of the ritual. Um, I'm not sure which which culture this is in, but in the morning, that's how they start their day. Is that in Indonesia where they sit in a circle and they they share their dreams and they they process their dreams, even with the the youngsters? Yes. Yeah. I experienced that at uh, in India um, at a Krishnamurti school, but that was a big part of our practice. Yeah. So what do you think in Western civilization, if you had to pick out two or three of these beautiful rituals or ceremonies or just just how they live um, that you think that could help our, our culture today? Because you've been able to really bring that into your family life, into raising your son. And and so what do you think about that to give the listeners just some, some things, some food for thought? Yeah, I would say, you know, one thing that I really appreciated, you know, um, is the trust of, of the capacity of children kind of beyond what we uh, expect from children. Mm. I find that in the West, we've kind of, ironically, maybe it's kind of funny to say this, but we've infantilized children, um, meaning we have a we have a fixed image of what an infant is that is very narrow and doesn't really include a lot that's that's really probably possible in their own deep innate, you know, intelligence and soul presence. And uh, I, I've learned from other cultures that. You know, children can surprise you with remarkable things if you just trust in their being and listen a little bit. Um, and I, I used to, you know, lead uh, little children in, in some listening and meditation exercises, and I was just impressed and delighted how well they took to that. I That did really um, strike me when you talked about and I think it was in Bali where you taught different ages, but your favorite place was, what was it called? Where it was the quiet, the quiet room and what that was all about. And it was actually for, to radiate quietness and peacefulness throughout the, throughout the whole school community. Yes, I, I, this was in India and it was at a Krishnamurti school. Um, because so I mentioned earlier in our talk here that Krishnamurti has the idea that we, you know, we should really work with children and create schools and raise, um, you know, children in a beautiful way. And so at the center of every Krishnamurti school is one room where nobody talks. Um, if you go in the room, you go in there um, in silence and listening and people meditate there or they just look at the flowers and the trees, um, listen to the birds. Um, but that's just this kind of the center beating, silent beating heart of, of every school. And uh, 
So I would lead um, early morning classes in listening and meditation to uh, first and second grade children. And yeah, that was just such a delightful experience to see how they could sit with their backs so straight and their faces beaming and the things that they would notice about what they were listening to or about their own mind um, was just remarkable. And it, and it really opened me up to, to recognize um, that we shouldn't expect too little of our kids to say, oh, they're just a kid, they can't do it. It doesn't mean push things on them and, and, and like, like they were doing in Korea, but it means op- you know, holding open space for, for them to express in ways that uh, you may not anticipate. Right. And so what, what have been the, the greatest lessons that the children that you've, you've taught or you've experienced all over the world and your son, what, what are the greatest lessons that, that it has taught you personally? I want to say something about uh, somebody else first, just because this happened last night. Um, and I was talking to somebody who had been struggling with depression and he had uh, been taking some medication and he got off medication and he, he got better for a while, then he went into depression again. But uh, in his work to come out of it, he cites the thing that saved him is basically going and playing uh, like four or five days a week with his niece and nephew. And that allowed him to uncontract and to let go of his stress and to really emerge from his depression. And to me, that echoes my own experience, which is that, you know, with children, there is such an undefendedness, there's such an innocent spontaneity there's such a freshness towards life if they haven't been wounded too early on um, that, you know, yes, it can, if we're busy with something, sometimes their questions and their way of being can be exasperating. But if you really take time to stop and listen for me, it's always been healing to move into that way of being yeah. um, into that, that, you know, to let go of the kind of preoccupations that you often carry and enter back into that, that place of, of, of spontaneous delight and joy um, where the world is your oyster you know I love how you say enter back into because we all we all began there you know we all we came into this earth with this deep sense of spirituality and and yes that's beautiful so we got to wrap it up but my last question for you is if you could take a walk with yourself and you were five years old, what would you say to yourself? I was thinking about that because I knew you were going to ask that question. (laughs) And I'm trying to think of how I would put it in a way that my five-year-old self would understand. But um, I think the simple message is, is you are enough and trust in life. because after, when I, when I became 8, 9, 12, especially high school, I didn't think I was enough and I didn't trust life. I had been hurt. I had been broken. And I think, you know, looking back, what I believed about myself was so wrong in terms of, you know, the, the, the things that, that brought me down in those years, you know. Right. Um, 
and that if I could just have encouraged myself a little bit to, um, uh, to just love myself and to accept myself as enough um, and, and to trust life. Yes, beautiful. And I, have, I know I said it would be the last question, but I have one more. Um, what, what do these stories through the lens of the very young, what do they teach us about consciousness? or possibly the survival, the survival of consciousness, the forever of love and eternity? Oh, that's a deep one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, sometimes listening to children, uh, it's like listening to, a, you know, a wisdom that's beyond what they could have picked up from their environment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why, you know, like with Wordsworth trailing um, <laughs> clouds of, you know, eternity behind them, there is this sense that uh, they're in touch with something deeper and vaster. Um, and uh, as you are, a, you know, a member of this school, you'll go through and learn about a number of different theories about how they look at the early childhood experience and what our connection is to the sacred in those different ways, um, those different models and understandings. I think one, one thing that really stands out to me is that there is both an incompleteness in children that needs the, sh- the rounding and the shaping of the world, um, but there's also an openness and uh, a union with the world and it's a, a capacity for communion with and experiencing the world in a deep way, in an open way that we often lose. We shut down and get narrow. Um, as we'll talk in some of the classes that you're going to take, there may be some necessary reasons for this, but one of the things that's important for us to do, I think, is on the far side of our development, return back to some of those qualities of, uh, of the child um, and reclaim them from where we sit now. They will be what they always already were and yet never were um, because we carry the echo from that and yet as they're realized in us now, it won't be the same, but it will be still something that is, a, I think, a reconnecting us to aspects of our potential and being that that should not be sacrificed though our education system often calls for that to be sacrificed right right so true wow so much to think about well well thank you so much for today is there anything you'd like to say any question i i did not ask that you'd like to share um no i think we we covered everything that we (laughs) were planning but i really enjoyed um talking with you i wish you a lot of luck with this um, podcast. I think it's a beautiful project and uh, so many blessings for that. Yes. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you so much for your, your wonderful message. Oh, well, thank you. Okay. Have a great evening. You too. Right, take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye. If you would like to reach Bruce, you can find him on his Facebook page at Bruce Alderman, spelled A-L-D-E-R-M-A-N. Or you can email him at balderman at jfku.edu.
And of course, all of this will be in our show notes. At the end of his interview, he talked a little bit about a beautiful poem by William Woodsworth. And the name of it is Trailing Clouds of Glory. I'm going to be putting this in a blog on our website, but I'd just like to read the first few lines of this beautiful poem. The soul that arises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Just beautiful. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.